0: For 23 years, the Claire Ruth Luce Policy Institute has been preparing, promoting, and celebrating the best conservative women in America. And every year, the Claire Ruth Luce Policy Institute gives a Woman of the Year Award to honor an extraordinary woman who, like our organization's namesake, Claire Ruth Luce, shows courage, leadership, grace, and dedication to advancing conservative this year we're honored to present our 2015 Woman of the Year Award to Katie McFarland who represents all these qualities and more. Katie is the National Security Analyst for Fox News. She hosts the program DEFCON 3 on FoxNews.com and is a commentator for several radio programs. At this very difficult time in our nation's history, KT has been extraordinarily effective in her writing, radio commentary, and appearances on Fox News this year. She explains the threat of terrorism and radical Islam in such a clear and concise way, and I have seen how effective she is speaking to students at loose events. Since Katie is such a popular speaker for the Institute, she was in our Great American Conservative Women calendar last year. That's the picture in the program. It's my favorite calendar picture. And she's going to be in next year's calendar as well. She also held positions in the Ford, Nixon, and Reagan administrations, including as a senior speechwriter to Casper Weinberger, Secretary of Defense for President Reagan. And as a New Yorker, I'm a fellow no, New Yorker. <laughs> there you are. Born and raised there. She had the spunk and the gumption to run against Hillary Clinton for U.S. Senate in 2006 in the Republican Senate primary. She's also a great role model for the young women here, with a wonderful husband, Alan. Stand up. Stand up. <laughs> and five children. One of whom is with us today, Lieutenant Fiona McFarland. Please stand up. University, and she attended a PhD program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology with concentrations on nuclear weapons from China and the Soviet Union. She's a bold and persistent fighter for conservative principles. She's someone so many Americans, especially young women, like many of you in this room, are inspired by and look to as an example when it comes to courageously speaking out and working as hard as you can for what you believe in. Many on the left, especially in the universities and our popular culture, pretend not to be aware of the amazing achievements of women like Katie McFarlane. Instead of praise, conservative women are often ridiculed or marginalized. Sometimes they're savaged by radical feminists and left-wing leaders of the group, and many in the media. But at the Clearbooth Loose Policy Institute, we're eager to celebrate the achievements of conservative women leaders. We know they represent millions of women across the country who believe in traditional values, that peace for America comes through strength, and that our rights come from God, not from government, and that's what makes us exceptional. Katie, hey, I want to thank you for all you've done as a conservative leader for America and for inspiring so many women with your devotion to hard work and principles. It's now my great privilege to present you with the 2015 Woman of the Year Award.
1: Right. We were part of the Raven Revolution, So I'm really honored. But to be here, obviously, is all of you, particularly the guys from you. And if I could just borrow that word for a minute. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I thought would be fun to share with you is does anybody really know who Claire was? Sort of. Okay, I met Claire I met her when I was about your age and I was working at the White House. I worked for Henry Kissinger and I started working for Henry Kissinger not because I was just a foreign policy analyst, but because I could type really fast. <laughs> and I typed something called the President's Daily Brief. And then I worked my way up the food chain and typist this to Henry Kissinger's research assistant. But Clara Blue's was going to be at the White House as an inventor of the And in those days, in the White House you could kind of move around. It was it was not like when you watch The West Wing, right? And everybody's got the passes. You can't get past this place. You can't get past that. And Pat Buchanan's wife, Shelley, found his wife at that point. She was the person who let people in and out of the West Wing. So I went up to her and said, Shelly, can I have me clear with this appointment? So I went up and there, stood my hand. I was expecting sort of larger than life creature, and she's about five too. really tiny, beautifully. I mean, Joan dead sort of charismatic. She was well into her 70s at that point, point. and I looked at her and I thought, Gosh, if I don't do someday, because she had been um, a very successful and prominent writer, playwright. She had been a war correspondent in war zones where women, I mean, places that Brian Williams never would have dared to go. <laughs> she had had a major career of her own before she married the most powerful man in the country. She married the Rupert Burdock of her day, Henry Luce. And she'd been an ambassador. She was a leader of the Republican Party. She was one of the people who sponsored Richard Nixon's campaign and his quest for the presidency. And so I met her at the time, I thought, wow, she's so extraordinary. But you know, the thing about her is she didn't start out as the most powerful woman in the world. She started out from extremely humble beginnings. She was, um, her parents weren't married. She grew up in New York. Her dad was sort of an a salesman, sometime musician. Right? She and her brother were all around the country. The parents, not married then, split up. And she really had to become who she was by herself. And I think that was the lesson I took away from her, is that Claire Ruth Luce, who I saw in the glory of her day, had started out as just one really determined woman to make it. She was born in 1903 before women had the right to vote. And in her career as a young woman, she became a secretary and argued that women should have the right to vote and she got very well involved in the a movement. she became a writer. Women weren't becoming writers. Women weren't becoming anything. In fact, when she was a young woman in New York, it was a, a time before women could, could go to restaurants by themselves when she was in her teens. Because women at that time, they were the anti laws, said that if a woman went to a restaurant by herself, well, what was she up to? And she she had a girlfriend, clearly there were two of them doing that. And so Claire Poulos just broke every barrier. And so as I reflected about you know, what she meant to me, and I, really I've met her once, and, and I can't say that I had a profound effect on her life. Um, but I think that there's important lessons to learn. because They've certainly helped me in my life. And that's number one, it doesn't matter where you're from or what your background is. It just matters who this is. And I think it's so important for women, women especially, to figure out who you are. You know, every one of you, You're at university campuses, where well, you're a weirdo, right? I mean, you're a conservative woman. What's wrong with you? Don't, you? don't you know about the war on women that all those Republicans are doing? Don't you know that you know, Hillary's gonna be president? And so the fact that you're here at all means that you've got some real courage in your convictions. Keep those, keep that courage, because you're gonna
0: need it.
1: You're gonna need it when you go the first job you get. You're going to need it when you go to the sorority house. You're going to need it when you go on a date with some guy. You're going to be it all the time. You're going to need to know who you are, and why who you are is important to you, and then stick to your guns. I remember about three years ago, I went I went to lunches with some guys I've been in high school with. Not any boyfriends, but all the guys I've been in high school with. And you know, I, I remember like one guy had a big afro, he's cold.
0: <laughs> and so,
1: and we sat around at this lunch and I said, you know, we always thought you were just such a traditional person. And we were the big brackets because we were against the Vietnam War and we demonstrated and you always had a job. Right? And he said, you know, I kind of realized you were the rebel Because you were the one who you thinking for yourself. You were the one who was doing something that the rest of us weren't doing. We were all going off in a group to the anti-war demonstration. You were putting on your little dress and you were going to the White House to type the president's daily brief. So it was a it was a great admiration, sort of 40 years later, of respect for somebody who had stuck to her ground. So I'm who I am. It took me a long time to figure out who that was. But I've stuck to that. The other thing, and I think this is a great prefer for this lesson, is whatever you do, do it better than everybody else. You know, I don't care if all you're doing is writing your history paper. Write the best history paper ever. I don't care if you're babysitting. Be the best babysitter ever. Always understand that if you work harder and stronger longer, you're better qualified than everybody else, then nobody can take that away. And it will give you a confidence that you need as a woman. And I think I'm so confident, right? And I've done all these great things. I was at a lunch last week with the Russian ambassador to the United Nations, and there were about ten of us at this lunch. I was the only one. And there was a man who's gotten a Pulitzer Prize. You will all know his name if I tell you. He is on. He has a Sunday talk show. He has a column in a paper. And I'm thinking, I want to ask that Russian ambassador the question about. You know, if you think that American-Russian relations are bad, why does President Putin stand up at the Kremlin and bash America and say that America is the source of all evil in the world? So I think, oh, I dare not say that, that just sounds so sort of, not quite highfalutin enough. And so this, this Thomas guy, I, it, I want to use the word I think, this Thomas man <laughs> that, in a really long explanation, asks the same question that I would ask in two sentences took him about 10 minutes to ask the question. And I thought to myself, ah, I should have asked that question. A, we would have been here, we would have been out 10 minutes earlier if I had asked that question. But, I, but here I am, right? All the things I've done, I mean, i tried tried clean weapons at MIT, and I'm afraid to ask the, what I thought might not be a, you know, I thought, well, it's too obvious a question. And yet, when this guy asked the Thomas question, everyone looked at him and said, oh, you're so right. That's such insight. And so I think as a woman, Understand that you need a little confidence out there. That if you if you are better prepared than everybody else, that'll give you a little bit of confidence that you might not otherwise have. And so it's important to be really good at what you do, get your advanced degrees, work harder than everybody else, make sure you've got a plan B when plan A fails, and live your life that way. The third thing, though, that I think is really important, and it certainly has been something for me is I've lived my life in chapters. I had the chapter when all I do is work. I mean, I worked 20 percent. seven. I type the president's day, brief. I got on my bicycle, I went back to George Washington University, I became Chinese, and I would get back on my bicycle, and I would go through the anti-war demonstrations and go work at the White House. And, and that was a period of time when I just worked all the time. And I got an education, I put myself in college, and it was a, a time in my life when I didn't have time for all that other stuff. And then when I got to be in my third middle thirties, early thirties, I got married. And I married this great guy thirty years ago, last month. Oh. And, <laughs> and, and I'm no longer being uh, on the cover of Washingtonian magazine as Woman of the Year, or I forget what it was, but it was I got this big award for being, you know, some of the most powerful women in the Reagan administration. Although Becky and Michelle and I know that that was a really small universe. Um, <laughs> but I got married and I just became a stay-at-home mom. And raised. down had two boys. We had three more kids. Fiona's our oldest daughter. And I was, I was far more concerned with who was going to be class mother and who was going to be elected congress. And I remember one time when Fiona was just a little baby and she had her head on the side of something and had a big golf ball size. Injury on her head and I threw her in the car and we're driving to the emergency room. And I'm so nervous I'm doing this wrong. And I looked down at my shoes. And I had one sneaker and one flat. <laughs> <laughs> and I was somebody who when I worked at the Pentagon and when I was on the cover of Washingtonian magazine, I would never have gone outside without my mind. And so it was a different chapter in my life. This was a chapter that I was a stay-at-home mom. And then the chapter came next where I retired. We had won the Cold War. You know, I was a nuclear weapons expert. President Reagan put in place all the steps that ultimately won the Cold War, so I, I could retire. And then September 11th happened. And that was my next chapter. And that chapter was me getting back involved again. Now, Fiona probably doesn't remember this as well as I do, um, but there was a point at which she was in ninth grade at the time at September 11th. And shortly after that, I was sort of fuming around, and she said, well, Mom, you know, our country's under attack. I, I want to serve my country. What are you going to do? You're just going to go along with your girlfriends. And so she motivated me. So my inspiration in my adult life came from my 11, you know, 12-year-old daughter. And so it motivated me to get back involved. Um, I think that she probably didn't understand that I would come on a suicide mission to try running that story quick. LAUGHTER <laughs> ended up making me very proud of by going to the Naval Academy. She is a Naval Officer at this day. So that was my next chapter. My next chapter was to reemerge in public life and go on a suicide mission against Hillary Clinton. Um, but I think that the, what I learned from that lesson was i always felt guilty. I felt really guilty when I was working all the time that some of my girlfriends were getting married. And they were having kids. And what was I doing? I was working all the time. What's wrong with this picture? And then I had the chapter where I got married, and I was just, you know, I, mean, I was worried about making Christmas cookies. And I thought, oh gosh, what am I doing in this chapter? I mean, I should be out in the world, right? I mean, that was what I was trained to do. And then I got to the next chapter, and then my chapter was, oh my gosh, I'm being a bad mother because I really didn't pay attention to that. And I never went to her football game. It's her soccer game went to the older ones soccer game, I went to the kids soccer game, and I, think, I finally realized that being a woman in this day and age, you have a, you have a, lot, of, a lot of great things that happen. In your generation, you can now do everything. In our generation, a woman professional, you could be a woman professional, probably as a teacher, maybe an administrator, maybe a nurse, but then when you got married, and had kids, well, you weren't supposed to work. And so, the women of my mother's generation They felt guilty all the time, but they felt more than that they felt frustrated because they didn't have the options. My generation, I think we are really the first women of that generation who had the option of having a career, having an education, having a marriage, having a family, but maybe not all at the same time. For me, I've had to live my life in chapters. I know other women who have tried to do it all. It just wasn't my thing, but other women who tried to juggle all that stuff. I think the important thing to understand is with all the options and the privileges and the opportunities you have, you're going to probably feel guilty a lot. You're going to feel guilty that, oh my god, everybody's getting married by biological rocks. Take a why am I not getting married? Or you're going to feel, oh, um, gee, you know, when you're a bit older, you'll think, oh, I really should be going to my kid's piano recital, but I've got to get the paper done. Or I've got to finish this project. Or you're going to feel, I'm going to finish the project. But it's not going to be good enough because I am going to run out and go to that game or the music recital. So I think that understand that for 15 years you're going to go guilty.
0: <laughs> going to be I mean, I'm, I'm working too hard,
1: I'm not working too hard enough. I've spent too much time with my family, Oh, I don't have a family. And you're just going to feel really guilty. But understand that that's better than feeling frustrated and feeling that you cannot find out who you are and be that person. So if I would have any advice to you, it would be understand that figure out who you are and be that person. Be better at everything that you do than the other guy is. You know, being well-educated, work really hard, never say that this is good enough. And then finally, understand that it's okay to feel guilty, because guilty is better than frustrated. And maybe your life lives some chapters. The only other really great bit of advice I got was from a woman that I admire greatly. And that was Margaret Thatcher. I was during the Reagan administration. she was very close to President Reagan. And I was in the Pentagon, and my boss was Casper Weinberger, who worshipped Margaret Thatcher. Admiration was mutual. And Casper Weinberger wanted to speak at the Oxford Union and wanted to debate the moral equivalency of the United States and then the Soviet Union. And Margaret Thatcher called him and said, don't do it, because you're going to go to a university campus and you are going to be eaten alive, because you're a conservative. And at Oxford University, there aren't any conservatives. And you are going to look like a warmonger, and you are going to... And then she went on about how it was going to make you a little piece. Um, but Casper Weinberger and his conviction went ahead, went to the Oxford debate, and won the election. But he didn't know that he won the Oxford debate, because at Oxford University, you do your debate, and then you leave. And then the voting happens where you have two doors. You can go out the yay door or the nay door, which is just like House and Commons. So Kat Weinberger leaves thinking, gosh, I don't know if I won that debate. If I didn't win that debate, Western well, Civilization the NATO Alliance, so maybe it's safe. So Margaret Thatcher called in the middle of the night and said, I hope you understand you won. So for me, it was, this is a guy who had the courage of his convictions, but for me it was also an opportunity to get to know a little bit Margaret Thatcher. I mean, i knew her a lot more than she knew me. Um, I then later saw her at Casper Weinberger's funeral, and it was while I was running for the Senate against Hillary Clinton, and Lady Thatcher and I were sitting near each other, and she sort of vaguely remembered me, and I, of course, remembered her. And she said, well, you know, I've got some advice for you as a woman running for office. I thought all oh, girls of wisdom from the greatest woman later of my time. <laughs> and she put me on and down. And she said, Well, always take two dresses. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Yes, lady gosh. And she said, Well, you know, when you go for television interviews, you always want two dresses. And she said, Sometimes the camera doesn't look right on one. And you want to make sure you have an alternative. She said, You know what? I was running, my first, when I was first running for car, and she ran again and again and again before she also was able to win. She said, I went to my first television interview. She said, I had a coconut dress and, and the producer looked at me and said, Is that what you're prepared to wear? And she said, I had right up. And I said, I have another. At which point she pulled out whatever the solid color dress was. And she said, that was the best advice. She said, I just want to give you that advice. And when I took away from that, this wisdom, this amount of wisdom, always have a plan B. And so Margaret Thatcher, who always had a plan B, including the solid color dress as opposed to the polka dot dress, which would have just jumped like that on the screen. Um, the wonderful thing about being a woman in this day and age is you can be real. Maybe not over. No but but Margaret Thatcher, <laughs> she can be a real person and still be the greatest woman. in the hit in. in and and the world leadership of her generation. So all of that is a long way of saying, I think it's wonderful what you're doing. I admire you for the courage of your convictions, because you are in a place often where you are probably made fun of more than your herald about your opinion. And I also want to tell you that you're in a moment, like Becky, like Becky had, and like Michelle and I had, in 1980. This is the 1980 moment. In 1979, 1980, when we got involved, in the White House, Ronald Reagan ran for the presidency. It was the third time he ran, but the country was in a very similar place to where we are today. The economy was in shambles, very high unemployment, double-digit inflation. The country had lost its sense of leadership. Jimmy Carter would say, "In that day's speech, that America was in a period of malaise so that we lost our sense of who we are." And, and the American defenses had been allowed to wither. The Soviet Union was, was building up its military, challenging us at all parts of the world. And the Iranian mullahs had over 100 American diplomats held hostage in Iraq. The country, if you had asked most Americans at that point, they would have said, you know, we used to be great, but we're not anymore, we're on the downside of history. Reagan changed all that. And by the time Reagan left office, eight years later, it was the largest peacetime boom in modern times, 19 million jobs were created in less than eight years. We had built up our defenses and we had put in place all the policies which ultimately would lead to America's victory in the Cold War without firing a shot. And then what Reagan wrote in his farewell address to the American people as an office he, you know, he knew he'd done all this stuff, and so he said, I'm so glad we did this until I did that. But what I feel most proud of is that I restored the faith of the American people in themselves and thereby the faith of the world and the American people. We're at that moment again. And those of us who were the co-warriors, who were the young pups in the Reagan administration, you know, we worked really hard and we changed the world. And we can now say, you know, we did our part. When it was our moment, we were called a and we rose to the occasion. Frankly, it is now up to you. This is the 1980 moment. This is when America has lost confidence in itself. 65% of the American people think when civilization declined. The world thinks we're over. The Chinese laugh about American exceptionalism. Ha ha. They think it's all over for us as well. Our economy doesn't seem to recover. Oh, we have to be greener get getting jobs. And we've just lost, whether you think we should or shouldn't, or all the excuses that we can have, we've just lost two wars. And yet the threat that we face, I think, with radical Islamic jihad is as great an existential threat as our country's ever been. So I look at you and say, you've got the energy. You've got the fire in your belly. Go do it. Because if you don't, I can promise you, 30 years from now, you will be looking at yourselves in the mirror, and you're thinking, you know, if I had only, I could have done that. I could have made a difference. Maybe a little difference, but I would have been part of it. So I encourage every one of you to go out there and take chances and rebuild this country, because if you don't, all folks like me are gonna be in the old folks' town. We're gonna be so mad yeah, at you. <laughs>
0: <I'm a total laughs> anyway, I'd love to answer questions do we have do we have time for a few questions? Okay. now, your top
1: three things for young women. Oh, that's so good. Um, the top three things, I wish I had known then that I know now. Well, obviously, when Farid Zakaria asked the process question, I haven't learned the one thing I should have learned, which was to have the confidence in my own, you know, my own ability, my own opinion. So I've still learned that one. So I think I would have had confidence at an earlier age to just to go out there and put myself out. I think the second one I would have learned was to relax. Because it's all going to work out OK. I mean, not in the Obama way that it's all going to work out because the great art of history is going to take care of everything, or the global community is going to make sure everything works out well. But you know, I think it's a very good life lesson to just say, I'm going to do the right thing for the right reasons. And maybe it's not going to go the way I planned, but in, fact, it's, in a lot of ways it's going to be better. So, that anxiety you have, oh am I gonna meet the right guy, oh am I gonna, you know, get the right grade, oh am I gonna get the right internship, oh am I gonna get the right job. Just keep doing what you're doing and it'll work out. May not be the way you plan, but it'll work out again. Thank, okay. you. Thank you. Yes. Hi, I'm Taylor McCarty from Penn State University. Um, you touched on radical Islam a little bit.
0: And I was just wondering what your strategy with ISIS would be. Okay. I think by the way, it's much bigger than ISIS.
1: When people say, oh, you know, we're going to put a thousand troops there, or we're going to do a little bombing, and we're going to take care of ISIS, you guys don't get it. I mean, this is a death cult that wants to, and feels not only the right, but the responsibility to kill everybody who doesn't agree with them, whether they're Christians or Jews or atheists or other Muslims. They believe that they have been chosen by Allah to rule the world. Now, we can laugh at that, and we can dismiss that, and we can say, oh, how silly and stupid they are. But in fact, that is what they believe. And here's why that's, that's dangerous. In our era, in the Cold War, the way we kept the peace was something called deterrence. We had nukes, the Russians had nukes, the Chinese had nukes. But we all knew that if we ever kind of got into a fight with each other, it could be a nuclear war. So we never got there. And it kept the peace. We knew if they attacked us, we could attack them back. We'd both be destroyed. We would both be deterred. So we never got to the point where we went to war. Why? Because deterrence workers, they didn't really want to die. You've got to do it now. Deterrence doesn't work with this, or it doesn't work enough. If you tell somebody who wants to be a suicide bomber, they're going to die. Bring it on, right? I mean, they seek this out. And so any sense that we have that they are going to be ashamed of what they've done, or the burning a Jordanian pilot in a cage, you know, crucifying children, chopping off limbs of women, enslaving generations. Forget it. They, they think that's okay. And they also are not going to be deterred from doing what they're doing. So I look at all this chatter about, well, we're going to a job summit, which is the president's solution, right? Job summit. <laughs> or we're going to throw some troops at it, which is what some of my conservative colleagues have said. They've got to fix it within. And I think it needs to be a much bigger and more comprehensive strategy. So I think it needs an economic component where we bank them. We find out where there are their sources of funding, we dry it up. If there are their sources of funding from oil wells, bomb the oil wells. If there are sources of funding, if they've got ISIS oil tankers that are on their way to market, blow them out the water. Understand that unless they are cut, their funding is cut off, they are not going to stop. So figure out a way of where the funding is, and even if you have to be tough with some bankers who don't want to hear this, cut off that funding. Another way to cut off that funding is American energy independence. If we build the Keystone Pipeline, if we create <laughs> Industrial Revolution in the United States, but it bankrupts them, because all of those who you know whether it's Arab oil, whether it's Russian oil, whether it's Venezuelan oil and oil, that's all they do. And you bankrupt the bad guys when you drive the price of oil down. The next thing though is I think needs an ideological component. I think we need to say this is not moral equivalency. American and Western civilization is not the same as ISIS. No more apology to her. No more, oh, it's just like the crusade. Forget it. Stand tall for who we are and what we believe in. And encourage those who are challenging their religion from within. And President Sisi um, has come out in, with great personal courage. His has is on his back now. He's marked. He's a marked man. And he went to the Al-Azhar University, which is their Vatican, and he said to the leaders, he said to their opponent, the Pope,
0: he said, you guys
1: have to fix it. Within, you have to condemn radical Islam because nobody else can do it. And he said this on New Year's Day. Nothing happened. And then five days ago, the Grand Imam of Al Azhar Mosque went to Saudi Arabia, and he made the same speech. He said, "We have to reform from within." What does the United States do? We should be applauding that. We should be, you know, taking out banners. We should say, "How can we help you do this?" We did just the opposite. And President Obama won't. and not only does he not welcome Sisi, not only does he not help those people who are trying to reform from within, the Muslims would other and the the and Qatar, the guy who gave the sea money for ISIS, so we need to have an, an, an ideological component as well. I think we also need an alliance. And the president will say, "Well, I got this alliance." You know, John Kerry who says everything's great, right? We've got this alliance. Well, the alliance isn't working, guys. Come so up with a new plan. If we have allies that are sort of allies but they're not putting their forces in, how about let's give them some inducements and we're at a minimum say, "If you guys are not all in on this fight," You know, new Saudi Arabia, new Bahrain, new Egypt, guess what? Don't come on at us when it doesn't work out, because you're next. So encourage, like uh, twist their arm, <laughs> encourage allies to step up to the fight. And then there is a military component. I am not one who believes that we should put another 150,000 troops back in the East. I don't think we should attend because We tried that. It didn't work. They have to do it. And we have to convince them that it's in their interest to do it and they have in the last couple of months, all of a sudden you've seen things like King Abdullah of Jordan who was put on the flight suit and they're taking the fight. You're seeing President Sisi bomb Libya last week. So it's not just ISIS, it's a lot bigger. It's Al-Qaeda, it's Al-Nusra Front, it's all radical Islam, whether it's Shiite radical Islam through Hezbollah and terrorists, or whether it's Sunni radical Islam from all of those groups. But this is your fight. It will not be over soon. It is going to take a generation. But if you don't do it, they really do have a plan. Now, we can laugh, as I said, and think, oh, well, how could it possibly? Here's how they do it. Iran's about to have is on the cost of a nuclear weapons state. The president, even within the next 48 hours, could well announce an agreement with Iran. It's a fake deal. But it's gonna allow President Obama probably to have his summit meeting in Tehran, and he's going to be able to say, see if he's on time. Echoing remember <laughs> of probably. And the mainstream media will lap it up like, you know, train seals are pursued. But the reality is that the other countries in the region are looking at this, and they are ready to meet up. The Egyptians have already signed an agreement with the Russians three weeks ago to build a new reactor. The Saudis have already said, that they would acquire a nuclear weapon, in other words, they'll buy one from Pakistan. And so you can see that part of the world, the most dangerous part of the world, unstable part of the world, starting to get nuclear weapons. In fact, like a nuclear arms race there. So I see potential nuclear weapons here, and I see potential people who are very happy to die. As long as they kill other people to go along with them, who cannot be deterred. And my worry is that they get together. And that's your world. I mean, I, I saw my old boss Henry Kissinger uh, right, right in November, and I asked him a question. i unlike like, "What you did, did?" And I said, "So what happens if Iran gets news? And he said, "Well, everybody's going to get So He said, so, "Okay, so then what's the plan?" And he said, "I don't know." He said, "I'm 92 years old, and that's your problem." And he said, "But it's a world." But he didn't say it. He said a very you know fancy way. Um, but it was very much you know this is this is your generational challenge, and that your generational challenge. I'm not saying you should all become foreign affairs experts or learn about the nuclear fuel cycle, but understand that America is the only country that can lead and the world is hungry for our leadership, not for exploitation, but they want us to step up and lead. They are willing to do their part if we offer them the inducements. So that is a challenge for you. Help us restore America. Know that this is your 1980 moment. Elect the right guy and then Endorse and support whatever he has to do because this challenge doesn't go away. It only gets worse and only gets harder. Thank you so much. Okay, a couple more
0: questions. I'm good. I'm good good to go. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. My name is Bailey and I'm a senior at Hillsdale College. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: question and I can never figure it out because
0: for a woman who says, oh, I'm a feminist, so, don't you want to be happy? You know? <laughs> I mean, is going to make you happy?
1: Is going to fulfill you? And here's the example that for me in my life made a difference. Um, Richard Nixon was president, I worked, you know, typist in the White House basement, uh, in the Nixon administration. And when I came to Washington, and I, you know, I didn't know Betty College. I, I was just a kid from Madison, Wisconsin, and I,
0: Richard Nixon to me was the most powerful
1: man in the world, right, president of the United States. And the night and he ended up for are you all aware of Watergate? Do you know, what Watergate. Is? <laughs> <laughs> um, Richard Nixon resigned. He was forced out of office. I went and I was working in the White House at the time in the West Wing. And the day he resigned, I went to the East Room, which is where he made his speech and tearful, and so I'm standing on the wall. Richard Nixon comes in with his family, <coughs> we step up on the podium, and Richard Nixon basically says, I'm, I'm leaving. And he walked into that room, the most powerful man in the world. You know, he could've gone like that, and we would've had an for war. He walked out of that room, his wife, his two daughters, and his two sons, y'all. You know, I was in. And I remember thinking, Oh, you better spend some time doing the part that's not the famous public life, because at the end, you could be just up there alone. So, for any feminist who gives you a hard time, just say, look, okay, but I want to be happy too, and I think I'm going to have a better prospect of that than you. On one side, who want to intervene and spread democracy, and they're willing to use American military force to do it. On the other hand, you have know, the neo isolationists who say, bring all the troops home, we're going to only worry about ourselves, no foreign aid. And then there's in the middle the Reagan people. And you have those divides in every one of the other issues, whether it's Obamacare, whether it's immigration, whether it's amnesty. We're just a lot of tribes. So I'm looking to say, who unites? Because we're in that 1980 moment again, I know who Jimmy Carter is, okay? He's the guy in the White House. He's the one that slices and dices and doesn't believe in us, and thinks that the world is going to be far better if America steps back and, quote, leads from behind. So that somehow the global community is going to be in charge. I know who that guy is. What I don't know is who is the United States But I do know that when Reagan became president, he very specifically became the president First of all, the candidate, and then the president of all the American people. And so the uniter of the tribes is not, for me, somebody who's going to say, let's get us to be smaller. Or let's You're not a good man. You're not really a Republican. Oh, I'm not so sure about you. I want the uniter. united. And the example I'll give for that is when Reagan first became governor of California. So he'd been a movie star. He had been a spokesman for General Electric. He had been a labor leader. But he then ran for governor. And we had a contentious primary. And in the primary, as they were getting close to the end, Reagan knew that he was probably going to win. And so his chief of staff, the campaign manager, they were all busy divvying out, you know, like only in Washington, where everybody's choosing. Before the guys even won, they are all choosing, well, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. It's my job over there. And so uh, Reagan went to his chief of staff and said, don't give out all the jobs. Why don't you hold maybe 40% of them open?" And the guy said, no, we, this is, you know, victory circus jobs." And Reagan said, that other guy's got a staff too. He's gonna to lose the primary, and I'm gonna win the primary, but I need those people to win the general election. Hold open 40% of the staff that spaces in, in our great campaign and you put the opponents people, staff people in those, and that's how we're gonna unite this trend. Reagan did that when he then became governor, he brought in people from the other party. When he became president, he brought in people from the other wings of the party. So for me, I don't know who that is. I mean, I'm, I'm really excited. I've seen the next president of the United States somewhere in the last three days, and whoever unites the tribes is the one. Katie and I are going to secretly be
0: here. but we won't tell
1: anybody, especially anybody from the Washington Post who's scrolling the is- halls.
0: <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. My question is: Everyone's
1: rallying. How do we, as young women, stop that? You know, let me just ask you, all right, so you're all on various college campuses. How many of your friends just think it's going to be Hillary because she's a woman, and all women are going to unite around Hillary? Mm -hmm. Mm, More than we like, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that if you look at Hillary Clinton, well, first of all, I would say, if we nominate Two old white guys, I think that's a big mistake. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very important for us to show, as a party, I mean, I'm married to an old white
0: guy, so my <laughs> <laughs>
1: But, I think it's probably a mistake, if, as a political party, if we don't find a way to include others, somehow or whatever, whatever that way is. Hillary, though, is, and, and, and again, remember, I've been there. I know how to that She will dash and slash and her people will absolutely destroy the family, the character, or whatever it is of anybody that's anywhere even conceivably running for her. I mean, all the stuff you're seeing about, does Scott Walker really go to college?
0: You know, that's Hillary trying to knock him
1: out early. That's all the opposition research that the Clinton machine has. And I must say, though, that the people that I saw speaking in the last three days,
0: you put a lot of them up against
1: her and then she's kind of like, oh, tired. And the youthful enthusiasm, I think is great. And this is, you know, an election about the future. Um, and I do hope that whoever we put forward, again, nice tribes, and, and in a way that has some energy and enthusiasm about the future,
0: because you can say a lot of things about Hori, but man, she's not about the future. And I just think she looks and oh, tired. Don't you? That way? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, and, uh, I really appreciate that. Any
1: more? Mm-hmm. KT, you are the or- mm-hmm. truth. We have
0: one more. We mm-hmm. so have one more. And I'll right, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. make a really quick mm-hmm. answer. I'm Catherine Bach. I'm from Solstead College. And I was wondering, kind of I'm a little bit too, um, but there's, there's a war on women. But especially on conservative women, there's women on women talking about why would you have a Woman, that, that kind of thing, can you say in one sentence what
1: defines a conservative woman and what makes her special? And what can we say as young women to other women to encourage them to be conservative themselves? Ooh, in one sentence, All right. Um, the thing I learned most about life, I think, was being a housewife and mother, because I learned how people think. Before that I just studied stuff, right? But when I learn about what motivates people, what makes them happy, how you induce good behavior on the part of others. So as a conservative woman, I look at this and say, my life is more than just my job. My life is more than just my gender. My life is more than just, you know, my birth control pills or whatever. It's more than that. I'm more than that. I'm not just a job. I'm not just a housewife. I'm not just a mother. I'm not just a wife. I'm all of those things. And as a conservative woman, I can be all of those things. And if you think there's a war on women, the war really is on you. Because you're not going to be all of those things. And so my answer to them would be, at the end of the day, I want to hide my deathbed and say, I've had a great career. I've made a difference i had a happy marriage. I've had great kids.
0: Well, not always great, but I've had kids. <laughs> and I really feel that
1: I've lived life to the fullest. And if you want to go be in your little narrow world and do the world thing, do you think that's how you're going to feel at the end of the day? I don't think so. So just go for the whole thing, you know? And they're not. And that's the difference between a conservative woman and a woman. They're really at war with themselves or not. So thank you very much.